Welcome to Read, Watch, Play. I'm James. I'm Justin. And I'm Cleo. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about At the Mountains of Madness, a novella by H.P. Lovecraft. Kind of a classic, very seminal work of weird, weird horror fiction. Commonly referred to as Lovecraftian. Indeed. <laughs> he did kind of create the genre. Yeah, which is kind of too bad, because there are a few people doing similar stuff before him, and kind of his contemporaries, but... Yeah, no, he was far and away the most successful. Uh, so I guess that's actually a really good place to start, just Lovecraft in general. Um, how much Lovecraft had everyone read before this? Exactly zero. <laughs> I had read a lot as a kid, or not as a, like a young kid, but like as an adolescent, I guess. And He's picturing five-year-old Cleo. Five, <laughs> probably. I mean, my... Cthulhu. My dad used to read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe to me, mm -hmm. um, who was um, a big inspiration for Lovecraft, right? I think Lovecraft really yeah. adored Poe. He did, yeah. Um, yeah. And then that kind of led into me becoming interested in Lovecraft. First, just like hearing about the stories before I actually ended up, you know, reading them. And it had been a, it had been a long time, I think, since I had really read a lot of Lovecraft um, until we read this just now. But I definitely write a lot of Lovecraft-inspired works. Because even Neil Gaiman has um, written at least one or two short stories that are kind of based on this mythos. He's got... It's that one that's great. It's like the, A Study in Emerald? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a Sherlock Lovecraft fanfic, kind of. Yeah. Fuck, that sounds fun. awesome. It's really good. I mean, it's not like his best writing, but it's super fun. Mm. Um, yeah, there are whole collections, there are anthologies, just like tons and tons of anthologies of authors writing in the Lovecraft universe. Yeah, it's really something that's very much grown beyond not just the original writing, but just kind of almost the original intent. Um, Lovecraft is very much someone who was not very appreciated in his time, um, which actually plays a lot into this specific story. But has had such an influence and has really lived on and kind of grown to be a lot more than he was in that moment. I think even to the extent where uh, we were talking about this earlier, but there's when people think of kind of the Lovecraft Cthulhu mythos, um, there's this whole basic body of work that he actually wrote. And there's so much that was added later and by other people and building on it that it almost becomes like two very different things if you just stick to what Lovecraft wrote versus the things that have been kind of added on to it and used to help grow the the mythos as a whole since since he died and since he stopped writing. And this was this story was published a little bit later in his career, wasn't it? It was nineteen thirty one. Um and I think it was it was published as a serial because it was too long for any of the normal kind of um publications that came out regularly yeah it's i think all of lovecraft's work was published in in magazines um i i don't remember exactly where 31 falls in his overall span um but yeah he died in 37 oh that's true i don't remember when i know he wrote this in 31 but it didn't get published until 36. until 36. Yeah, much later. Um, 
maybe that's it. It was written relatively kind of in the middle, but published very late. Um, I know I've got a note about some of his like really early sketches being written in 1918, 1920. So yeah, I don't actually know his publication dates, but yeah, this is though, this is certainly to my knowledge, the longest thing that he's written. Um, and you're right. Yeah. This was published as three parts. And my understanding is that length is a lot of why he had such a hard time getting it published. You know, this was, this wasn't like Wilkie Collins or Arthur Conan Doyle where, you know, any paper or magazine would have been thrilled to have the next, you know, serialization from these writers. Lovecraft was not the household name that he's kind of grown into. And at the time saying, you know, well, there's this hundred page story by this kind of nobody HP Lovecraft guy, you know, do we want to commit to three 30 page and, and you know, that was a much harder sell. Uh, but, but yeah. Fuck, I mean, with a name like that, how do you not just give him a shot? <laughs> so even before he was famous, just how perfect is that name for everything? HP Lovecraft, like fuck, man, fuck. I personally think the story could have used with a bit of editing. It was, I mean, it's much longer than what his usual stuff is like. Yeah, yeah I tend to prefer shows. his shorter works. I just I felt like this did get a little repetitive, um, and just kind of just got drawn out to a place where it just didn't need to be. Yeah, so the, out of all the Lovecraft stories I've read, this is not my favorite. Um, I mean, I think it plays an important role kind of in the world he's set up with these creatures, but it's just, I don't know. He's, he's kind of, and this is again, it's weird because I love the mythos that H.P. Lovecraft has set up, right? I love this kind of like creepy alien, like eldritch world. Um, but his style of writing is not my favorite. And I kind of feel that way. I mean, no, I feel much more extreme about this with Isaac Asimov, for instance. I think he has great ideas and is like a shit writer. Like I cannot stand to read Asimov <laughs> because it's just like boring and it's just not, I don't know, stylistically is just shit. And I know people are going to, there's some people who would like hate me for saying that, but I know a lot of other people agree. And with Lovecraft, I feel kind of similarly about that where he has these great ideas and sometimes his style of writing is perfect for it with like these shorter works. But with this, it just like, I don't know. It needed to be maybe half the length it was. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's a fair a fair point. It takes it takes a very long time to get going, and once it does, uh, easier to talk about later. But there are definitely like extended segments that are just talking about like the culture in 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 a place that that do feel kind of drawn out. I think it's most it's most noticeable when you are familiar with his with his shorter works to compare to compare to, and you have those much snappier bits. Yeah, I think this it, like it starts and stops a lot in terms of I guess like action, right? Like you have the the whole beginning sequence that is just kind of slow and, and a slog, and it's the part that I ultimately skimmed over. But and then you know some. Some mundane stuff will happen, and the story will progress, and then something interesting happens, and you have that going on, and then it goes back to being mundane for a little while, and then something interesting happens, and and it like kind of holds that structure throughout. Yeah, I mean, because the way it's told is it's in the first person. He's like writing kind of like this report 
trying to deter future explorers from going into the Arctic. Because, yeah, I mean, the, the basic setup for the plot is um, there was, oh, God, I already forget the character's names, but William Dyer is the narrator. Um, and he's, like, a professor from Miskatonic University, which is, you know, the university that's brought up in several stories. Um, and he's leading this expedition into Antarctica and with a, bunch, with a bunch of grad students and special drilling equipment so they can take samples of the ice. And he is trying, the whole point of the story is kind of like trying to deter another group from going out there and encountering the things that they encountered. Yeah, and I think he does, I'll say this, as awkward as the writing can be to read, it does in a lot of ways feel very genuine to the character that he's writing as. Um, it's longer, he's hesitant to reveal certain things that he's been kind of sworn to secrecy about just because the things that they found in the Antarctic were so awful. Um, but at the same time, he needs to say now, like, this is this is the time to stand up and say, no, don't go and explore this place. We, we found these things. You can't go. It is important that this exhibition not happen. But yeah, it, what feels like it might be a geologist trying to explain their findings on this expedition does not necessarily make for a great novella. Yeah, it was just like, I don't know, the descriptions tend to be a little too long and a little boring. There was a one Goodreads review. Let me find it. I have it up here somewhere. And it's really short. It's a three-star review by someone named Jamie. And it says, Never before has such an exciting story been told in such a dull way. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of felt that way. Um, just that like the things that are happening are huge and they should be horrifying. And maybe it's just because... Because I remember these stories being terrifying when I was a kid. And now, rereading this one at least, I didn't really feel that terror anymore. And maybe it's because we're so used to Lovecraftian creatures. And, I mean, this kind of introduced the idea of ancient astronauts. I think that's the right the thing. And ancient astronauts, like that something had come from space millions of years ago and was the cause of human, like they were the reason that humans became a thing. Um. And maybe it's just that after watching a silly show, like Ancient Aliens, while, like, drunk, um, this yeah. doesn't seem as scary to me anymore. It just make, it seems a little bit comical. I don't know. Does anybody else have that experience? Well, the funny thing about it for me, he, like, Lovecraft is the one who sort of invented that concept. Um, or at least I should say popularized the concept. Uh, and it didn't, it wasn't really appearing in fiction before he sort of solidified the alien status that we see in um in this and so i don't know i mean that was that was sort of what i had come across when i was digging a little deeper into the history of this and the backstory and that kind of stuff and it was just it's interesting to me that it can feel tired just because we've had to deal with it for so long while actually being like the seminal work almost i guess yeah i think that a lot of stuff that exists in that same neighborhood uh, deals with a similar problem. You have this thing that ends up feeling very old, very dated, very traditional, because 
people have taken those ideas and kind of drawn all the life out of them. And now there's this kind of new way of looking at these ideas. And so you go back to this and you're like, oh, well, this feels very dated. This way of writing is kind of weird. These revelations are not that scary because so many people have done the, it's like, oh, and then we went to learn things and what we learned was terrible and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it, we've talked a lot about Bloodborne on this podcast, which is very explicitly inspired by these stories yeah. um, in, you know, some very directly. Um, Shadow over Innsmouth, if I remember it, uh, has a lot of those ideas and you've seen it so many times now, it become really easy to forget when you go and you read this and you say, it's like, oh, well, I've seen all this before. It's like, well, but yeah, but they were all trying to copy this one, yeah. which can make for a really interesting reading experience as someone now, what, like 80 years after this was written? 85? Um, yeah, wow, perspective. Um, <laughs> uh, and actually, speaking of, speaking of that, for some context, this... The writing of Mountains of Madness fell at about the the very end of like the second third of Lovecraft's writing career. If you look at it at about kind of 1920 through 35 or so, um, which seems to be roughly his kind of most active times, this was this was kind of the culmination of his second act. Um, it is everything that came together, which is interesting because I I always thought of it as being uh, an, an earlier work than that, but yeah, I I was wrong. I mean, in terms of what it sets up and what it explains, it definitely feels like it could have been one of the first, right? Yeah, I think that's the trick. Is he really builds to these? Like he has it in his head, and then he just doesn't give you many answers. He explains a lot more in this story than he does in others which is funny because he also in this story in particular falls back on kind of the thing that he's known for right which is fear of the unknown yeah and he keeps saying like oh my god it was so what we saw was so terrifying that there aren't words to describe it so yeah. he just continuously decides not to describe something because he'll be like i there's no words i can't describe it or it's too terrible to say what it was which works you know to a degree but when it when it's said so much in this story, it kind of starts to lose its impact and power after a while. And you, you can only put so much faith in your reader. Like, if you, if you want to create some kind of fantastical horror, and you, if you want your reader to create some kind of fantastical horror in their head, they can only do that so many times over the span of one, like, novella before they're going to get a little tired of it, too. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. Uh, I think you see a lot of movies doing not enough of this, and I think you see a lot of books maybe doing it a bit too much. Um, I'd say where where you think Lovecraft himself, and particularly at the Mountains of Madness Falls, is probably going to be pretty pretty subjective. But I think kind of maybe maybe infamously, films like Cloverfield um, are ones where a lot of people go back and they look at it and they say, "Man, that was really scary until we saw the monster," and after that it was just kind of blah but then you get a lot of books that take this approach and they say oh well i don't really need to design 
some whole monster. I can just say, and then I saw something that really freaked me out. And trust me, it was scary. And you can kind of get away with that. Because when you think when you think about the actual events of the story, I mean, it's not a whole lot. Like they go to the Antarctic. He describes at great length the, their preparations mm. for going yeah. right with the airplane parts and the ships. One which is named the Arkham, and the other one which is is the other one the Miskatonic. I think so. One's, okay, it's two like you know standard Lovecraft names, and yeah. then it's just a lot of talking about like how many sleds they had and how many dogs they had. And then finally, it takes a while for anything really interesting to happen. And I don't know. It's like, I, I appreciate having the world built realistically for me, but I don't need to know every detail of every like rivet in an airplane in order to, for me to believe you that yes, these people are going to the Antarctic and you know something about the Antarctic and like what it takes to survive there. Like I'll believe you as long as you're somewhat realistic i don't need every single detail yeah i don't need to know that on october 26th you crossed this particular like longitude and latitude marker and you were excited to be going to x right from yeah, this I'm... from this point it's like no come on and i i did appreciate kind of like the references to shackleton and stuff because that's important when you're talking about you know antarctic exploration but i don't know i found myself i listened to the audiobook again the narrator was really great um and of course, his name is completely escaping me again. <laughs> but I will find it right now in the info section of... No, I won't because it's not listed in iTunes, is it? No, no, it's not. I will get back to that. <laughs> but, um, but, oh, I already forgot what I was... Oh, yeah, but there's just... Because then they get... I would say it's like maybe a third of the way into the book when things start really happening, right? Like, big things happen. Yeah, and what's really doubly dope. tough is it the place where things start happening is shortly after the end of the first piece that was serialized. So that first installment of this story really just condenses just all of, all of the most rote, not interesting, just world-building in not a fun way, and... I mean, wow, just like what an what an unfortunate stopping point. Like, can you imagine just being handed that and, and told that the next part was going to come next month? And yeah, seriously. It's like, oh, God, like I, I don't want to wait a month. I don't I don't want it at all. If it's just going to be you explaining your airplanes to me. <laughs> um, but the narrator's name is Edward Herman. There we go. <laughs> I I've never actually listened to an audiobook version of this. I. That might be a lot of fun. Yeah, um, he's a really good narrator. Um, again, speaks slowly, so I after a while I had to speed it up just because <laughs> I yeah. cannot stand it when narrators talk at this pace when I am used to reading at a much faster pace, you know? Mm. So have we hit about as much as we can discuss without getting into spoilers? Yeah, probably. I, mean, I think so. I'm surprised we made it this far. Yeah. So certainly if it sounds interesting, definitely... Uh, I would say certainly an important story as far as weird fiction goes. Um, very influential, as as we pointed out, if not necessarily appreciated in its time. Uh, outdated, let's say, writing style that's not necessarily for everyone. But I always say I I think it builds pretty well, and once it gets going, I I have fewer fewer troubles getting through it. 
but yeah rough start yeah i'd say if you are just starting to read lovecraft do not let this be your first story um i could have used that advice last month <laughs> i don't know which story i would say to start with though actually yeah that's a good question um did he write call of cthulhu first yes i, I believe I so. so yeah Maybe. i mean shadow over innsmouth is that's a good one a good one um Horror Red but, Hook yeah. is very straightforward. Um, I don't know if it's as exciting. I can just imagine There's... it's about the Brooklyn neighborhood. Yeah. He he lived in Brooklyn briefly. He lived in New York and just, just hated it. Hated it <laughs> so much. That doesn't even surprise me a little. Yeah. I there's a there's a very good reason why so many of his kind of scary events happen or are associated with cities. He he hates cities. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of there's a lot of good starting places I would say, um, but yeah, in hindsight, this probably not not one of them. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I guess it's time to dive into the spoilers. Uh, do you want to talk about? Oh, the next I, one? all right. So um, next time we will be talking on our next episode where we talk about a book. We will be talking about the Hunger Games, um, specifically, actually, the entire trilogy. We're going to be reading all three books um, to fit in with our theme of kids killing other kids. Uh, we will also be watching Battle Royale and playing, what's the game's name again? Uh, Rampa, Trigger Happy Havoc. Yeah, so very specific theme. Uh, and we'll hope, we hope you'll join us for that. Should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think so. So with that, spoilers. Um, haven't read mountains of madness and not interested in hearing what happens now would be the time to stop thank you so much for being here this long and we'll uh, see you next time <laughs> so the thing i felt that it was a little anticlimactic yeah like, like i like i like the penguins yeah i like right? the blind <laughs> albino six foot tall penguins that are what like used as livestock they implied yeah, or just kind of <laughs> just hanging around. Out. Yeah, in the caves. I mean, I I like that. That was that felt unique to me. But then it was just kind of I don't know, knowing that they're gonna go there and find a big elder, you know, creepy elder god things. It's just like I don't know when you know maybe it maybe back in the day when that was new, it was genuinely creepy. But now, kind of like of course, it's gonna be like an alien squid thing. <laughs> That's just like you know. I mean, because they, they right from the beginning. I mean, right around like the third way, like a third of the way through, they find it's what's his name, Professor Lake, something Lake. Yeah, like Professor Lake. He um finds these creatures, these like big creatures in the ice or these fossils. Yeah, there's like twelve or fourteen of them or something. Yeah, yeah. And the dogs hate them. The dog. And when the dogs start freaking in a horror story, if the dogs are freaking out, get the fuck out yeah, of there. Yeah, just leave. Yeah. So, and they didn't listen to the dogs, and so his entire group is slaughtered, um, in a really, mis like kind of mysterious way, where like they're like one guy has his intestines out or something. It was there was a very vivid description of one dude in particular. Well, yeah, and they're they're basically like like he's dissected. Yeah. Right. It's it's like something that had no idea what people were, found some people, killed him and and figured out what made him tick and yeah i mean i think 
if one thing is also certain in the story, it's that Lovecraft doesn't like the cold. Because the cold is as much of a scary thing in this story as any of the Elder God things. Like, he has some pretty good, actually, if any of the descriptions are good in this book, it's of the cold. <laughs> and the effect that it has on the party. Yeah, Maybe it gets, it's also because it I am averse. I don't like I don't like extreme weather. <laughs> I I think especially with with the scientist who was dissected, I think that they do a really it, Lovecraft does a good job of kind of juxtaposing Lake's party with the old ones that they find. Um and that honestly there's not a whole lot that the old ones do to Lake's party that lake's party didn't do to the old ones um before they woke up but it i i think actually i'll say this as a whole i think that the story does a really interesting job of playing with what the what the horror will be uh, and because as soon as the old ones are unearthed we as the reader know bad news yeah you know not gonna go well lake is doomed Effectively, I mean, this being a Lovecraft story, everyone is doomed, um, including the rest of the planet. Exactly. Yeah. The these people have embarked on some sort of quest for knowledge, and that never ends well. So they go out. They've gone to the Antarctic and they found these old ones, and that goes poorly. But as as the narrator goes out and and explores this this city that they find beyond the mountains and we learn more and more and more about the old ones who used to live there i think it does a really good job of almost building a sympathy with them as you go and you you do find out that these old ones who woke up do seem to be a, acting in self-defense like like you said justin they found they didn't know what humans were and they found some humans who had cut up one of their brethren. Right. And so they killed everybody and decided to find out how humans work and decided to take one of them back to their city with them, which I think makes it a really interesting moment when when the horror down beneath the city isn't an old one, but but a Shoggoth, which I thought was a was a night twist, nice twist that's admittedly pretty well telegraphed as as you go and you're finding out more and more and more of the history of the old ones this kind of the, of the shagas growing and getting smarter and getting more rebellious and you know the like the war of, it's like the war of resubjugation that they call it and those moments as you build to there's there's not like one horror in this city or like this small group of old ones, but the whole thing seems to be somehow teeming with these Shoggoths that are just kind of running through the hallways and decapitate things. <laughs> so I, I think that that's, that is well done. And I think that that's, once you get to there, you start getting to those moments where you see, we really see those ideas shining through. And I think that that's where uh, Cleo in that review you mentioned where it talks about this like really exciting story told in a not very exciting way, we really get those moments of like this is how exciting this story is at its at its best. Yeah, and then I don't know. Yeah, I mean the ending 
was, I mean, because then it, it does become like they're pursued by a thing. And that's like kind of a classic horror trope, right? When like there's, when you're kind of have some kind of semblance of a chase. And then the one thing I think that I was confused about in this, not confused, but I, they probably, they left it definitely, or he left it open for interpretation for sure. But Danforth loses mm. it. His, yeah. his grad student who's like with him looks back while they're in the plane yeah flying yeah. away from this horrible place yeah it's, and I think it's like he Danforth starts is... screaming and he doesn't and this is like the one thing that danforth won't tell um his professor dyer like what he saw so what what is it exactly do you, that you think he saw do you think he saw anything or do you, do you think he actually saw something or do you think he hallucinated something that was that horrifying because that was the other thing, too, right? They kept talking about mirages. Yeah. So I wasn't certain sometimes, like, is this a real... I mean, that was obviously, again, intentional. Like, what's real? What's, you know, a mirage or a hallucination or an act of imagination? Because so, so, so much of the time, the narrator is saying, I wasn't even sure whether this was real, but everyone was seeing it, so it must have been. Or, you know, it was a lot, a lot of questioning one's sanity, which is another theme and a lot of Lovecraft's work, and, and in video games and board games, inspired yeah. by Lovecraft's work. And life in general. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, at least for me, I think that he, I think that he does see something. Um, I think that it, up until this point, there have been so many moments where they think they see something, um, that there's, by, in no respect, should have been imaginable. Like when they see the city in all of its splendor before before they get to the mountains and then they then they find it and they see that they saw it perfectly. But it must have they they write it off as, oh, well, it must have must have reflected against some ice in the air. Um, But at least in my head, there are so many things like that where it there's certain things where I believe it like I the wind coming out of the caves sounding like the old ones or the Shoggoths kind of making, making their music. Um, but when it comes to those bigger things, I think that the, the visual ones strike me as more, they, they write it off as it being only a mirage to protect that idea of the world making sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's why the, the, uh, not the author, the narrator can do that, but Danforth can't because he actually saw it. Mm. And the narrator kind of needs whatever Danforth saw to not be real. Um, because knowing that it was real is what breaks Danforth as a person. Yeah. But so that was, that was me. And it seems to be whatever he saw is whatever is beyond the second set of mountains. Um, the, the mountains that the old ones were scared of. Right. But, that was me. How about you, Cleo? Yeah, I wasn't... Because now I'm checking. I like to check to see other people's summaries to see whether I just totally misinterpreted something. Mm. And the only thing that Wikipedia, the always correct uh, <laughs> source, says, the only thing it really says about that is... Oh, great, I lost it already. Aboard the plane, high above the plateau, Danforth looks back and sees something that causes him to lose his sanity, implied to be the unnamed evil itself. Which is like, I don't know, there's a lot of unnamed evil in this um i I mean i guess like this this thing that even the elder things were freaked out about like because there was always it was it talks a lot about the um the murals there were murals right um 
that are in this kind of space where they lived, these hieroglyphic murals, and they would depict, well, they wouldn't depict, there's a certain thing that they just wouldn't depict, but it would show their reaction to this thing that they didn't like. Yeah. Something that was horrifying even to them. You know, horrifying to them in the way that this Shoggoth is almost to uh, Danforth and, and the narrator. Yeah. So is it that thing, that unseen thing that he saw right when he turned around? Yeah, I think that's the implication. Um, one thing, though, that I like a lot about that is kind of this weird, uh, this implication that it's somehow the narrator's fault that this happened to Danforth, uh, since he was saying that Danforth was still shaken from the Shoggoth, and so he couldn't, he was having a hard time flying. And so the narrator offers to take that instead. Yeah. And because the narrator took the controls, Danforth is just looking around everywhere. And because he's looking around, he sees this unnameable horror. And that certain amount of responsibility that falls on the narrator that is kind of there and almost this sense that he might have um, somehow saved himself from that similar fate by by chance or you know if if maybe not but that because of that switch danforth is just is never the same again and he he carries the effects of that moment with him like he's he's having these panic attacks and these nervous breakdowns and he just can't function anymore yeah i do i just kind of love that their like entire history is laid out in fairly easily discernible like hieroglyphics in a giant yeah. cave just like well all right here's the one mildly unbelievable thing so we can explain everything to you yeah, yeah. i felt like that was that was one of the things that annoyed me the most that there was this, like huge t chunk of text that was just like expositional stuff about well here's the entire history we just you know conveniently stumbled upon in picture form yeah on yeah. the walls perfectly preserved even though they're like aeons old yeah i agree that that's really one of the more frustrating points particularly again uh something that something we were talking about but just the sense that the it, the not knowing is what makes these stories fun so much at the time and it feels like part of why this particular story is so long is that he takes the time to explain all of this stuff um and that that's kind of unfortunate um i feel like having this information split up maybe across several smaller stories which is some of the fun of lovecraft is reading these different things and piecing things together and you feel like you're a character in the stories and you know like at at the beginning of call of cthulhu where they talk about you know like the the biggest mercy is not being able to take all these disparate events and see how they connect that you feel like you're one of these characters piecing together these mysteries of the old ones and the elder gods, et cetera, et cetera. But it makes the, that moment where it's just sort of presented to you, you know, on a wall, um, as a lot less fun. And if you can read this and say like, Oh, I know what that thing is. That thing's a Shoggoth. And you don't need to know about this whole, you know, how the old ones came to Earth and how how they lived and how often they reproduced and, like, the 
the ones who lived on land and the ones who lived in the water and then Cthulhu shows up and they like fight for a little bit and yeah it does seem kind of weird to have this whole history spoon fed to you in a way that you don't see as often yeah i mean because the other interest you know going off that the other interesting thing with the character of danforth is that they mentioned the one one thing that's mentioned over and over again is oh it's just like what they talk about in the necronomicon yeah like the necronomicon is brought up so many times like not subtly at all (laughs) um and danforth is supposed to be like one of the only people who's read it in its entirety i think or has ever yeah you know really thorough one of the only people who has dared to really thoroughly look at it which is probably one of the other reasons why his sanity is already kind of on the brink of snapping um true yeah it's interesting for with this story it's so based on knowledge as being dangerous like knowledge of this unknown like trying to acquire knowledge of the unknown as being like super risky and yet it's like here's a picture book on the wall of all these. <laughs> here's all your knowledge happen. of the unknown. What do you guys think of this as like a a rumination and the sort of like uh, unavoidable like folly of sentient beings, right? Like the idea that the old ones have created the Shogos as these subservient, you know, homunculi can just kind of do what they need and take shape what they need, and the idea that like humanity is kind of foolish and brazen and eventually going to do like the exact same thing if presented with that kind of opportunity. I think one of the things that's most compelling about that is that it's absolutely a possible reading of a story that was written so far before any of those questions were being asked otherwise, right? Because I mean this was this was 31. Yeah. So this is pre enigma machine this is pre-turing machine this is i mean clear you mentioned asimov earlier like this is so far like pre-asimov that getting into those ideas and some of the stuff that we've we talked about back in the ex machina episode um that it maps so well to that and that that sense of being kind of overcome or replaced or fighting with this thing that you've created that's become bigger than you and terrifying yeah is so primal um i think it's i think it's a cool thing i mean lovecraft was someone who was very scared of the other whatever whatever the other was um that that kind of thing gets into his writing and even if even if you know the the things in people that made him uncomfortable are not necessarily things in people that make everybody uncomfortable or should um uh, <laughs> in other to... words he was horribly horribly racist he really was he was i, I hate to say it he was such a, like a terrible Huge human bag. being but my understanding is like super nice to his friends was really like good at helping <laughs> young writers he would just if you wrote him a letter he would write him back he loved writing letters to people but yeah just super racist terrible dude but i don't know it's so hard to talk about him without talking about that. Yeah, but I mean, it's such a it was such a major part of his identity. It really he was, was. anti-Semitic, also, I think, and like oh yeah, well, that's I mean, that's a big thing because like the the uh, the shoguts are like basically golems. Yeah, right, and it, and it plays into into that whole anti-Semitism thing. It was like, well, look at what these yeah crazy magical Jews are gonna do to the world. 
which is kind of tricky. It because it he's one of those writers where he's smart enough that you know that that comparison was not lost on him. But at the same time, even though the reason why those things made him uncomfortable was terrible and baseless and was and he was a racist but he manages to distill that down into this much more universal thing you know he might think of people of other races as the other which you know is not a universal feeling but the sense of being scared by this this thing that isn't you and that you don't understand is and that he managed to boil it down to that point where you can read this and not be just like, again, super racist person and understand the unease that he's getting at. Which I think is the mark of a talented writer. And again, so much of that comes from this very specific place. But that he manages to make that more universal, I think, is an accomplishment. But I don't know. I always feel bad trying to, you know, quote unquote, defend Lovecraft because I will not defend his actual feelings. But I, I think that there's a skill to make you agree with that unease, even if he was feeling it towards a, a very specific manifestation of a truer idea. You know, it. Yeah, I mean, I it, it's a hard thing to express, right? It. He was unequivocally terrible in that in that sense, and he's also unequivocally like seminal and important in, with everything. I mean, everything that he created, everything that he started. Yeah, but which are yeah. two ideals that just butt heads. Yeah, it because fear of the unknown is a pretty universal fear, right? I mean, it's why we're afraid of the dark because you know it's a very that's a primal fear is if you're not able to see what's out there, then it's more of a threat to you. And if you're in a new location and you don't like, I mean, that's why the Antarctic is scary, right? Because it's kind of like this totally alien landscape. Um, maybe literally. Yeah. Maybe literally. <laughs> um, and if you're not used to surviving in a place like that, then you're probably fucked. Um, unfortunately for Lovecraft, he was also, I don't know. He just, a lot of that fear was totally misdirected <laughs> um, yeah. in his real life. And also, which also leaks into his fiction. I can't remember which stories it Oh, really, a lot of them. A lot of them, but there's some where very explicitly is just like over the top racist. I can't remember which ones they are now. It's been too long. Um, do you guys remember any of that? Or uh, Call of Cthulhu has some of it. Um, Horror Red Hook gets kind of into it. I mean, it's it's a lot of why he hated the city so much, was you had these people of other races just living there just down the block from you, and that that was terrible, etc., etc. But it, yeah, it shows up in a lot of those. Yeah, so I guess maybe, I don't know, part of that universal fear of the unknown manifested itself in him in this really acute, paranoid, horrible way. Yeah. And... I don't know. It's just, it's a shame when someone talented is a shitbag. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely a conversation worth having, right? Like when your artistic creative heroes 
our shit bags. Like there's a there's a whole documentary that was Stephen Fry talking about his love of um, Wagner because mm. he's Jewish, and so it's like how do I kind of how do these two parts of my identity coexist when I love Wagner's mu- music, but he was a horrible anti-Semitic person who Hitler loved. You know, it's, an, it's important even with like even things that seem totally innocent like Tintin, right? Oh, like yeah. Tintin has, you know, several. I mean, there's the, the first two. Well, there's the one that's like Tintin in the Congo, right? Which is awful. And people say like, oh, it's because of the time. And that's partly true. But still, it doesn't, it's not, you know, an excuse really that makes it all okay. But I love Tintin. And some of his depictions of, of um, that the depictions of Asians in that aren't fantastic um just kind of you know stereotypical art styles and whatnot but i don't know it's like you have to kind of you i feel like it's a really important subject to tackle and you have to come up with an answer for yourself and then just decide to like exist with it i think but um, it shouldn't be ignored yeah i think i think bringing up tintin is actually a great example um john hodgman um of who i'm a big fan actually has a lot to say on Hergay and Tintin and that if you just read through all of Tintin, he says, um, you get this really interesting journey where at a certain point you see him kind of realize how racist he is (laughs) and that he tries to start making amends and never quite can, but you, it's that Tintin taken as a whole is this really interesting portrait of someone who's sort of, coming to terms with the fact that he was wrong about that for so long. And I think something that's, you can say something similar about Lovecraft, except that his body of work is a portrait of a man who just doubles down on that fear. (laughs) You know, he doesn't try to reconcile that with these other things that he's finding. He just holds himself up in his house and just lets these fears double down upon themselves and grow and become more paranoid and I think in that sense, it his work taken as a whole really is an interesting portrait of someone who really is scared of the other and reacts to it in the same way as his protagonists. He withdraws. He kind of breaks in certain ways. And he's seen this thing that is bigger than himself, and he doesn't really know how to deal with it. Whereas, again, someone, someone like Hergé, who really does seem to do something in a different vein and he tries to get better and arguably never quite does but you supposedly you see you see this change i i really recommend looking for somewhere where hodgman gets into this it's i think it's a really interesting way of looking at it and i've i've not read enough tintin to be able to say that for myself but i i think at that in the very least these become really interesting portraits of of their authors and i think in a certain way the lovecraft one is tragic i mean he's not he doesn't become this sympathetic figure because he was racist and never got like better but i mean that must have been a tough life i mean being that scared of just people must have been just like a sad scared angry angry man i mean if you see a picture of him also he looks creepy. Oh yeah, he's a he looks creepy exactly looking dude. Like, he looks exactly like someone who would write stories like this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> while in like a dark closet. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that kind of sad note, shall we? <laughs> <laughs>
shall we wrap up at the Mountains of Madness? So, I mean, I'd say that, again, it's not the first Lovecraft story I would suggest reading. Um, It's not the one that you want to dive into first. Uh, I feel like it's hard to recommend any single Lovecraft story, like, in general. Like, I feel like you recommend his work. Yeah. As a as a thing in an, unto itself, more than you recommend any individual story, and then you leave that responsibility to to this other person to figure out the best place to start. And then when <laughs> they tell you, it's like, oh, I started with I don't know, like Dagon or something, and you're like, oh yeah, that's a tough one to start with, and you just say that <laughs> no matter what. Pretty much, you, you put yeah. that you put that responsibility on them. But there's some really good collections out there that are pretty thorough. Um, you're not going to get one anthology that has everything. Um, there's always going to be like one key thing missing. You're going to be like, oh my God, I thought the story was in this. And it's like, nope, it's in this other huge anthology that you have to get also. Um, and then I'd also recommend looking at, you know, stories that are inspired by Lovecraft because not all of them are great. (laughs) Um, but there are some jewels in there, like Neil Gaiman's work. Yeah. And I mean, you see it in a lot of games and, those games tend to do better when they are inspired by the themes or the tone as opposed to literally saying, oh, I'm going to put Cthulhu in my game. Yeah. Obvious exception being Cthulhu Saves the World, which is... Very important game. Amazing game. Uh, uh, but Eternal Darkness is one that I feel like... Absolutely. Yeah, just... Uh, uh. <laughs> and, I mean, a lot of people talk about Amnesia as being very yeah. Lovecraft-inspired. But, yeah, Eternal Darkness, things like Amnesia, it... You're much better off looking for things that don't advertise as being Lovecraftian. Because those yeah. tend to be more, oh, there will be Shagas, Yog sothoth will be in here somewhere, Cthulhu's in here, whatever. And it never works. It, but the ones that go for the, the themes tend to be better. Bloodborne, Bloodborne, I think, Bloodborne. is an excellent yeah. kind of piece that, or game that's inspired by it. Um, very strongly inspired by it yes. without like just taking the creatures and kind of implanting them into the game. Unfortunately, there are pretty much zero good movies inspired by love or that have Lovecraft's characters or monsters in them. Matter of time. We need to get I, that. I, do- we needed that Del Toro at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, because Lord, Lord, there are some bad movies <laughs> with with Lovecraftian creatures in them. It's got to be so hard, right? Because by definition, you can't show them. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the whole point. Yeah. But, yeah. I Someone will get it. I think Del Toro could. I do, too. And I'm hoping, I really, this is mildly off topic, but God, I just hope that Crimson Peak is so successful that Warner Brothers is like, all right, fine. We'll, we'll give you this crazy amount of money to make At the Mountains of Madness out of your crazy sketchbook, and it'll probably make us a, a bunch of money. Here you go. I... You know, that's the kind of movie where Del Toro's going to go to the Antarctic to film and, and he's going to find back. something terrible. He's never going to come back. <laughs> well, until we come back to At the Mountains of Madness in our in our inevitable watch segment when that movie hopefully gets made. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess we'll put this on the shelf for now. Um, the Thing! Sorry. The yeah. Thing is inspired by Lovecraft and is an excellent movie. Again, inspired loosely, does not take any of the creatures. Yeah, The, the Thing like is him. basically inspired by At the Mountains of Madness. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. Excellent movie. Did not see the remake, but the first one was excellent. Yeah, I forgot about it, too. I was thinking about it literally the entire time I read this story. Yeah. Huh. Well, go watch The Thing. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And on that note, 
we'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much.